Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 215. I'm your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we're excited to have back with us the internationally acclaimed the game designer and owner of Shoestone Publishing, Andrew Granoski. Thank you, Barney. And yes, you said my name right again. <laughs> so congratulations. Yeah. I'm nervous about it, but without prompting. Thank you. I'm real <laughs> glad to be back. Um, thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. So yeah, you're back on episode. You're here first on episode 179, or now you're here on 215. And I and I told you, I said, when you have a new a new book coming out, please come back on. Uh, and 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 you did reach out to me, and you said, yes, I do have a new a new book coming out, the Bestiary of Enchanted England, that is a part of your Maganomia world, and. Right. It's so exciting. So as of this recording, it is coming out on October 25th, uh, yep. 2022. And that's coming out as a Kickstarter. And you already have a lot of people that are following its launch. So that's pretty exciting already. I, I'm excited about it. Yeah. And I, I, if I recall correctly, when you were talking to us a few episodes ago, you were saying, listen, there are some things that I want to fill in as some supplements. And one of them was a bestiary. Was this something that you knew ahead of time you wanted to do? Or is this something that was just fans were just clamoring to have more bestiary? Uh, no, this this is something that I wanted to do. Okay. You, you asked me in our last episode what had to be cut. And it wasn't that I cut content, it's that I stopped adding content, right? And um, some of that was the enchanted creatures that we just didn't really get to before the book was really, the core rule book was really full. The core book is is huge. Um, and to the point where it's a, a, a bit of a problem. <laughs> but uh, um, So not all the creatures and some of the basics, like a basilisk, right, that you've heard of, and a unicorn, didn't get into the core book. So I worked with uh, my freelance creators, and I asked around some of my colleagues who used to freelance with me for another historical fantasy game, Ars Magica. And I got a team of three authors together and asked them, what, what are their ideas? for enchanted creatures. And I'll be honest, Barney, they really surprised me with authentic legends that went off the beaten path. Um, things I had never heard of. Wow. But uh, I mean, just today, Timothy gave me uh, a bunch of details about where he got these ideas and, and some of them I've seen. So you're gonna find in this book a mix of familiar uh, creatures from folklore and then um, some stuff that's really unexpected. I mean, my favorite example is the mer-chicken of Portland. And I want to keep it mysterious, the mysterious <laughs> mer-chicken. But um, this is a real thing. It's a, it's a giant chicken that used to appear off in the ocean off the island of Portland, according to legend. So... So I'm curious about that. So this is all just English, English. Uh, it's Britain. So it's, it's going to include Wales, 
Um, we didn't actually get into Scotland. Um, okay. And I, I was thinking maybe Scotland could be its own whole second volume of the bestiary if we if we get to that point. Um, we have to see how the market receives this this product. Right. Uh, but um, we we didn't need to go into Scotland to fill up a book. And so that's for later. And of course, Ireland is is uh, similar. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of lore in Ireland. So we covered England, including Cornwall and Wales, really, for uh, for this book. And some of the creatures, like the basilisk uh, or unicorn, are just from general European lore, but also would be encountered in English stories. And now. Are, are any of these creatures completely imagined or are they all based off of actual lore? Did you, was there anything that you, your, you or your freelancer just created? Everything is authentic. Some okay. of it is a new spin. And I'll okay. give you an example because um, the, the authors really got excited about fitting legends into... Uh, the the time period of Maganomia, which is the Elizabethan period, the 16th century, it's, um, well, and for example, um, elves um, exist in British folklore. Uh, they're the people under the hills. They're these mysterious, magical people that come out in the mist and they live underground and um, the authors imagined as the as England is changing, right, and it's gone from its kind of Arthurian ancient um, past to into through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance. How have the elves adapted? And so there's a um, Renaissance spin to legends that are mostly ancient. Uh, and the answer, I'll, I'll give away a little spoiler, a teaser here, is that the elves blend in, that they're, um, they walk among us, uh, and they, uh, they found places in cities um, where they've, they've moved in, um, and they're just trying to pass as human. Uh, but they've got their, they've still got their own society, and they're still th these immortal, magical people who come and go. And a part of what you have in, in your in your game as well is some hat tipping to science as well mm -hmm. um, with the alchemy piece to it. Did you feel as though you had to keep staying within that theme as as you introduced the, your your creatures as well? Oh, that's a great question. There's not a lot of connection between science, but. Um, you know, for in, for in the broader game, uh, there's not a lot of connection between the bestiary and what we would call science. But um, a strong theme of Maganomia is that in the 16th century, they hadn't sorted out the difference between what we call magic and what we call science. It was all philosophy. Mm. And, uh, and that really comes through. It was actually right after Elizabeth that what we call the scientific method got started. The the answer is it didn't it didn't affect the bestiary very much. Now, but, to, to remind our listeners and readers out there as well is like you use the fake core system to create right. the game. 
remind us again, what was the, the pieces of the fake core system that attracted you to making your game? Thanks. Um, there were there were a few things that really stood out about Fate to me uh, when I was trying to decide what engine I want to use for this game. When when people talk about Fate, usually the first thing they mention are aspects. Aspects are statements of what's important about a character. They're these short, open-ended statements. The Basilisk uh, has probably an aspect that it can kill you by looking at you, right? This is a very important thing. And in Fate, it does tie into the mechanics. But the important thing is that there are these open-ended statements that you can make to assert what's important about the character and how they fit into the story. So that's the first thing people think about when they think about Fate. And it's a selling point of the system. It really is. Um, What really clinched it for me was something else called the fate fractal and the fate fractal is a principle in fate that anything um, a location a vehicle um, can be modeled using the same attributes as a character and we so uh, a spell can have aspects mm. a spell can have skills and it can behave like a character in in a mechanical sense. It uses the same rules that a character uses. And this gave me wide open options for what to do with magic. So um, that's that's what really appealed to me about the Fate system. Now, talk to us a little bit about this upcoming Kickstarter that you're doing with this yep. supplement book, The Bestiary of England. What are some of the things that on here? How does this enhance the game? Say somebody has the core, mm-hmm. the core rule book. Yeah. What are some aspects of this supplement that will enhance a, a game? Something that we had to do to get the creatures to fit in to the to the core rule book was we just wrote the creatures and their powers like you would in a normal role-playing game supplement. Um because all the creatures are authentic, there are real legends connected to them. And we summarize those in this book. So you get the context. And more importantly, all of the freelance authors are really good at writing plot hooks for how to tie the creature into and make a story out of it. It's not a a fully developed scenario. Okay. Um, yeah, here's an example. So the questing beast from Arthurian legend is this strange chimeric creature made up of a bunch of different animals. It's got the legs of a stag and the body of a lion and so on. And here's an example of a plot hook that's written into the book. Cries in the Woods. The wizards are called to investigate the woodlands forming part of a large estate. The sounds of hunting dogs have been heard after night. And I'll add the questing beast had this sound that came with it of uh, like a pack of dogs wherever it went. They were invisible. Mm. Um, No signs of a hunt can be found. Investigating, it seems there may be two packs of dogs at either end of the woods, but the physical evidence suggests otherwise. 
is this actually a pair of questing beasts issuing mating calls and unable to find each other? Can the wizards play matchmakers before the landowner goes grows weary? <laughs> so that's an example of, of a plot hook. And that's something that the book has for every creature. We have at least two, and I'm aiming for three, of these kinds of plot hooks, both to be usable and also to help stimulate your imagination so that you can uh, make, to help you make your own stories about them. Now, would you be able to utilize this as a creatures as, could this bestiary be used as making creatures as say player characters or familiars, or is it just mostly for antagonists? Um, I wouldn't say antagonists. I would say it's mostly, it, it's definitely all for non-player characters. For Magnomia, we're not going into making player characters of fantastic creatures because we want to keep the enchantment alive. Okay. We are, we want to keep some distance and mystery okay. even between the wizard characters uh, and, and this wondrous world. So, there are fantastic creatures in this world, but they're all a big deal. Mm. When they show up, it's remarkable, and we want to make it memorable. Uh, so that's that's the angle that we've taken. Right. And how how is the the supplement book kind of split up? Is it split up into like how to utilize them as as aspects, and how to, or does it have like a nice long list of a lot of sample characters on that? Um, each creature is written up over a few pages and they're, they're self-contained. So, okay. um, the story hooks for the questing beast are in the questing beast chapter after its mm. statistics. Uh, and, uh, actually we've got, uh, a picture of each creature, original artwork done by humans. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, the artwork is black and white to make it look kind of like a Renaissance book and also to keep the cost under control. Right. right. And now, so talk to us a bit about that of the putting together the book, mm -hmm. for instance, um, was this something that you worked as part of one of your freelance team members to help uh, put the book together? Or is that something that you kind of took charge of saying, I want to make sure this stuff is in the first part of the book and this part is in the last part of the book. How did that whole process work? It was a little of both. Um, okay. what, what I did first is I recruited the creative team, uh, asking around among the freelancers in my stable who, who was interested, who had availability. And three out of the four people that I had in mind answered the call. Nice. Um, I gave them an initial list of British creatures to seed their interest and it's funny because i'm not going to name names but one of the authors said oh i'll just take these four off of that list or i'll start with these six and then the other author said oh well now since you've identified all these i'm going to go find things that are not on your list uh so uh but uh that that worked out really well so it enabled us to flesh out the book and really from a project planning perspective I started by looking at how many creatures do we need to make a book. Uh, 
then we couldn't resist adding to that (laughs) (laughs) and then adding some more. Uh, And that's where the stretch goals for the Kickstarter come in. There is a cost to illustrating all these creatures. Some of them we're we're saving as stretch goals uh, to, uh, so the the more people pledge, the more stuff goes in the book. And how many how many pages right now is the is the book cited to be? And it'll be 150-ish pages, I think. Mm. Uh, that stretch goals will add to that. Right. And I haven't really, like I said, I haven't really added it up. Right. And so you mentioned when you made Maganomia that you're being deliberate and putting in the fake core rule system inside the source book as well. Right. Well, I put it into the core rule book, right. not putting it into the source book. The source book is a is a supplement, so it assumes that you have access to fate or and or the Maganomia core book. There there's relatively little that is in this book that doesn't stand alone. So there's relatively little that you need from Maganomia core to use the bestiary. Okay. Uh, right. They go together, but um, the question in my mind is: Can I paste in enough from the? the there would be a few spells in the core book, um, and can I just put those in and have this be really a standalone thing for people who know fate? I think I can, but there may be one or two creatures. Uh, where the the spells don't uh, don't fit in, so right. that that's that's an open question. You'll have to find out <laughs> when when I launch the Kickstarter, I guess. But that would be interesting because then it'll be usable for for other fake core titles. Ninety percent it, it, of it, ninety five percent will be. Wow, I know that, and the lore and the story hooks are useful to any game that's fantasy in kind of the same genre. Um, one of the things that I'm definitely doing with Shoestone is we're making games for people who enjoy to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I believe that there's a strong collector market of people who have more time to read role-playing games than they have time to play them. And I'm not writing for them, but I'm definitely feeding that audience. Our games are meant to be played, no question, but all of us love to read. And we're writing games that are fun to read and pricing them so that you can read that. You you don't have to feel bad. Um, Right. So, uh, you know, the digital version of this book is going to be $10 in the Kickstarter. And so talk to us a little bit before we went live, we were mentioning some of your tier systems and you said something very interesting that Mm -hmm. um, I want other other creators to keep in mind on this. You mentioned how important that dollar tier is. Do you want to explain that? Yeah. um, So we have a $1 backer tier on Kickstarter. um, And there are a couple of reasons for it. But um, Kickstarter, I want everybody to understand, is social media. 
So you can follow your friends on Kickstarter. You can follow creators on Kickstarter. And you get notification when they get involved in a project, when your friend pledges and so on. If you pledge a dollar, right, first of all, you can say that you're a backer because you are. And you can post to social media that you're a backer and help get the word out. In the role-playing industry, the hard thing is not making a great game. Believe it or not, that's relatively easy. The hard thing is getting it noticed. And uh, the $1 backer tier makes, makes your pledge visible to your network. It gives you something you can share. Uh, so that's why the $1 pledge is really helpful. And I'll expand on this idea of Kickstarter as social media, because when you're running a business, um, what you'll find is that major media, social media platforms will limit your reach to your backers. They want to charge you for promotion to actually even reach all of your followers. Oh, wow. Kickstarter has the opposite financial incentive. They get money when people back. So they have a financial incentive to amplify your message. Right. So that's how I'm trying to build the audience and get Maganomia and our fun to read projects like a bestiary of enchanted England to get them known. Um, Marketing is a big part of what Kickstarter is going to do for us or what we're, we're using it for. We want to raise the crowd mm. more so than the money, because really, when you're making a role-playing game, you have to pay the money up front right. so that the game can be finished and delivered in a reasonable time. Um and I, I do want to say that with the bestiary, I mean, you can tell we've been talking about it like it's done. Um, there will be a playtest-ready manuscript, and as soon as the campaign ends, we'll deliver that to prove that there is a game or there's a, a book there. Um, then it goes into another round of playtesting. I've done some already, and editing and layout, and that takes a few months. So um, it'll be delivered in the summer of next year. Okay. All right. And, and, and you did mention too, before I went live, is like your tiers don't mention a physical copy. On That's the right. Yep. Um, the reason for that is that printing adds risk, cost, and complexity. And I don't want to go into too much of it, but um, our partner, our distribution partner is Drive Through RPG. And they actually make it really easy for creators and for backers to get print copies into people's hands. Um, because you can just make a print on demand product. Uh, the way it works is that everybody who backs a bestiary of enchanted england will get the digital copy delivered through drive through rpg and they'll get a coupon code okay for ordering the print copy when it's ready and 
from a business perspective, drive through RPG, which does this thousands of times a day, is going to handle the taxes, the printing, all the logistics, distribution, and shipping right, for me. And the backers pay literally the actual costs of paper, ink, the process, and the taxes and delivery fees. Uh, so I think that works out really well for everybody. And I don't have to maintain inventory. I don't have to do the Massachusetts sales tax paperwork. Uh, so, yeah. So that's that's why it's like that. Um, it, a lot of Kickstarters I've seen separate the physical tier from the uh, electronic tier. But that is if you're doing an offset print run and if you already have a, um, a print distribution business going. Shoestone operates part time. So I think that's low value activity and I'm, I'm, I'm delegating it to my partner. Right. Now, what, what are some of the things, this being another Kickstarter that you've been able to do, what are some of the lessons learned that you had from your previous Kickstarters that you're able to actually implement in this one? Well, this is really my first Kickstarter. I had okay. a crowdfunding project right. on another platform, Game on Tabletop. And I did that because I had some political objections to Kickstarter policy at the time related to their unions. But that's behind me now. Um, but what have I learned from crowdfunding? Um, well, uh, great question. First, you need to set an achievable base goal. Um, and you, you, you set yourself up for success with, with a modest base goal. Um, and then people begin to really engage with it. It's, it's strange. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's the psychology of, of Kickstarters. And, and you'll see most successful companies aim to fund in the first day. I'll be happy to fund in the first week. Um, so that's one thing. Um, Nobody complained that I kept it simple last time, okay? <laughs> so um, so the, the re keeping the reward tier simple, not going nuts with that. Um, and I've learned from backing a lot of role-playing game Kickstarters that stretch goals can actually be a real problem. Um, stretch goals don't always pay for themselves. So our approach to stretch goals is adding enhancements to the, to the same book. Um, adding, I've got the writers lined up. All I need to do is give them the green light and set a deadline and they'll write the stretch goals. Artwork is actually fast to produce compared to writing. So if the money's there, the the illustrators are waiting. They're hungry for work. Um, so to me, the, the stretch goals are product enhancements, not separate products. Okay. So I, I'm keeping things simple. Um, if Shoestone had been around for 20 years, not six. Uh, if we had 
40 items in our catalog rather than three, then, you know, I would, I might be inclined to bundle more stuff in stretch goals. I'm not really sure that that's worth the effort. Um, people want to pledge to a project because they're excited about that project. So although you, and here's the, here's the lesson, although you can make a Kickstarter as complicated as you want, keeping it focused helps. And I'm also very intentionally aiming, I sized the project so that it can be low cost, so it can be $10. Because I'm trying to attract people who maybe haven't heard of Magnomia, but who think that a, a bestiary for role-playing games based on authentic legends sounds cool and that they'd like to read it. Um, and yeah, grow the Magnomia audience that way, of course. Now, what are some of your other ideas about this? You can, there's so many different directions of making them different geographic locations for your bestiary, yep. doing different locations. What are some of the, what are some of the ideas you have on your, your, your list? Your, oh, your, your, for stretch goals? Yeah. Um, well, one of the examples is actually um, natural creatures, not supernatural ones. You can make stories and we've got this kind of queued up. We can make stories around, um, for instance, um, bears in England um, or um, snakes, you know, that are the, so natural creatures. Um, we had two ideas for spirits of the mines. So there are two different kinds of mining spirits. There's the knocker you may have heard of from Cornwall. And then there's this other creature called a blue cat. And they're both good ideas, but I don't want to, I want to put them both in the book, but I don't want people to feel like we're du duplicating and, and, and milking it. So I made um, the blue cap a stretch goal. You know, okay. pick the stronger one, the better known one, and then, um, you know, the, the blue cap is a bonus. Okay. Uh, so those are some of the ideas um, that we have. And honestly, uh, oh, um, we missed the opportunity for some of the dragons in the core book to add these plot hooks. So that's a stretch goal is, and... It's to reprint the creature from the core, the core rule book okay. and add the plot hooks to it. More artwork. The artists really like working on these projects. I like working with artists and um, fans like artwork. So it seems like uh, a, an easy win. So as Maganomia grows, how much do you still keep it to you as that creative director and how much do you give to your freelance artists or, or the the readers on directions towards what's going to be next as supplements come my philosophy of role-playing games is homebrew first so right. we really are looking for people who 
I think we're, we're, we're designing for people who want to run their own campaign and have their own story ideas. Um, that said, people's creativity needs a starting point. Mm. I call it a framework I, or priming the pump. And that's why I think these plot hooks for creatures are a hit. I mean, I've seen this successful in another game, in Ars Magica. Um, so that is that is part of the answer. And you asked about the freelancers. Um, these are individuals that are very creative. They're ex experienced gamers. They have a lot of enthusiasm for the topic. And I see myself as trying to feed and encourage that and let them go in their own, take the game in their own direction. Um, and my role is to keep things unified and to align it with some kind of strategy. Uh, so for example, I know that we need published adventures uh, that are pretty much ready to play. Mm. And I've actually got a number of those in the pipeline. Those won't be Kickstarters. Those will be, um, those will be just products that we launch and sell. Um, they're in playtesting and, and revision now um, because game masters want to, they, they, they need something to get started with. Um, you, you can persuade your group to try Magonomia, your gaming group. Um, do I want to make that hard, right? Do I want to make you have to design your whole own whole adventure first? Learn the game and no, no. Let's let's. So I want to create a paved road to this creative independence for the customer, and I'm referring to the customer as the game master. Um, the game player is also a customer. Um, and I'm really focusing on the game master as uh, my strategy because if you have game masters who want to run Magonomia, um, sales will pick up and the community will grow. Uh, it's going to succeed or fail. I think any game is going to succeed or fail on game masters. So since I can't do everything, right. I'm concentrating my priorities on making things easy for the game master. The bestiary is an example of that. It's a it's a pilot, and it's um, you know, it's sending a message. I hadn't really thought about this until now, but it's sending a message that we've got this historical fantasy game, and the core book talks a lot about historical adventures. The bestiary is sending a message that this is also fantasy and you can play it as fantasy. We encourage you to play it as fantasy. Um, don't get hung up on the history. It's there for you. Right. Uh, but you bring up a really good point as somebody that creates games like this is that you do have two audiences. You do have the game master audience and you have the player audience. The player audience is larger the game master audience is also the one that 
it's kind of seems to be in charge of the product. How, that's a good, how do you balance that? Is there anything specific you're thinking about that is more geared towards the players? Yeah, there is actually. Um, this is in the pipeline. I just don't know when it's going to come out. Um, Maganomi is a big, thick book, and it's kind of intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, looking for a leaner product that will help you learn the game and taking some of the lessons learned from the years of experience um, to, to make a quick start that – tells you what you need to know to get started and differentiates it because the fate system is different from the 5e system and it is a smart move in my view to explain here are the differences like aspects are a big deal uh for example um there are some other big differences. So to sort of get your mind into how the system works, how the setting works, give you the pre-generated characters. And we have this um, starter rules product, which is free. You can download it today on DriveThruRPG. But it's a, it's, it's a big, thick book. And it's possible to make something a lot leaner that'll be a tutorial and this would be a, a free product um the the quick start um that's player oriented um of course we have ideas for supplements about more spells and further developing the the magic as a player you know when i look at the core book it's a it's a thick I keep saying that it's a thick book. Right. It's got 190 plus spells in it. When I started this project, I didn't know if there would be enough spells. Um, that's not the problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, a player centered product would be, um, I, I don't believe in making new special rules that give you extra like make you more powerful or let you do things that are way cooler but um different archetypes of wizards so within the there are five sciences of magic and within each science oh i should recap what the sciences are there alchemy astrology theurgy which is um the magic of commanding good spirits, uh, sorcery, which is commanding whatever kinds of spirits, uh, maybe going into the grayer areas of magic, and witchcraft, which is British folk magic. And within those, there's a range of different sort of character concepts that you can express. And for players... Uh, the paved road looks like saying, would your astrologer prefer to be a politician or a physician? Mm. Those both fall under the purview of very well aligned with astrology, or maybe even an explorer and navigator that could be astrology too. So what are the ways that you can make a character concept within the swim lane of this Mm. science? And 
there's a lot that can be done to expand that. That's how we designed the sciences was by identifying archetypes for each science and then producing spells that support the archetype to fill out the spell book. So uh, I don't have clear plans for this, but to grow for players, right? When, when we're making, uh, when sales pick up, when the game gets better known, um, low hanging fruit would be more archetypes and the spells that go with them. Mm. So that's the sort of thing that's on my mind. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty um, cool. and, and there's more uh, okay. <laughs> for players. Um, we're just starting at Shoestone to make uh, strategic decisions about digital gaming and digital tabletop. Um, the merger of Roll20 with one bookshelf, also known as Drive Through RPG, um, was a major event for us. And we, because we're using one bookshelf as our distribution partner, one of our distribution partners, um, it makes a lot of sense for us to commit to Roll20 as a digital gaming platform. So another player sort of product that we can make would be character portraits and tokens for specifically this Elizabethan setting. And I think people will always pay for beautiful color artwork if you give them enough of it and price it appropriately. Right. So this is exciting. So, so Andrew, you have, as we're saying, this is coming out on October 25th, yeah. 2022, as, as of this recording. Now, in order to make this interview kind of evergreen, if someone is listening to this from a, a year from now, where, where can they find the supplement book? Um, the best place to find it will be on shoestone.com. You also will be able to find all our products on drive through RPG and most of our products on Indie Press Revolution, which is our retail partner. Okay. And, and as you did mention too, it's like the, the, the best place for people to actually see that a really good anchor site, as you mentioned, is going to be shoestone.com. Yeah. What I love about it is you also have a great place where you just, it's updated constantly. You're able to see like blog posts. It's, it's a great spot right there. So definitely go check out shoestone.com. It's right there. Thanks. Yeah. And Perfect. I also want to plug our, your favorite local game store. Uh, if you're fortunate enough to have a game store near you, um, definitely send them your business. Shoe, Shoe Stones um, ha has distribution partners who can, can get print books to your game store. And we also have um, the brick and mortar guarantee. So when if you buy a Shoestone book in a store, you can get the PDF for free, either by emailing service at shoestone.com or at the bits and mortar uh, website, which I'll follow up the, so you can put it in the, in the links. 
Cool. That's excellent. That is a great, is that's, that's fairly unique. I haven't heard very many people doing that. That's a really good idea. There's, yeah, there's, there's um, bits and mortar is a, is a really cool initiative. Um, it's to, in, is to remove the barriers to buying print books at a local game store, right? right? Um, by, by giving you the guarantee of, uh, of, a, of a digital version PDF. Wow. If you do that. And for Shoestone, the way we make our money is on the digital version. We're digital first company. And the markup for a print product, all of that goes to printing and to our distribution partners. Wow. Wow. Excellent. So we make the same right. money on a PDF or print copy. It's six of one half and a dozen of the other to us. Right. Wow. Cool. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. And listen, every, anytime, anytime there's a new supplement book, you got to come back on. I just, I love, I love all the work you're doing. This is exciting stuff. Well, thanks. Um, thanks for your excitement. I'm honestly surprised I was able to talk about it for, for a whole episode, but, uh, <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. Proud to be here. Thanks yeah. for your time. Thank you very much. see your level of of creating story plot what am i trying to say here plot, yeah um where as the game line evolves and and mm -hmm. gets bigger how much do you give oh, well, no, i'm trying to say that i'm trying to say something and it's like it keeps getting all meshed up in my head mm -hmm. um Mag magnomia, right? Magnomia. Magonomia. Magonomia. Okay. You got it. As a